Hi and welcome to Full Beams, a podcast hosted by the UCL Automotive Society. Full Beams is a result of the society's shared obsession for everything automotive. From YouTubers to Porsche personnel, we will talk to leading figures in the automotive world, uncovering their personal journeys and learning the stories behind automotive headlines. If you enjoy this episode, please follow the podcast and our Instagram page at ucl.ats. My name is Jonathan, and in this episode, my co-hosts were Max and Chris. Our guest today was Rob Durant. Rob is the product PR manager at Porsche UK, and he is also a UCL alumnus. You'll learn why, after studying at UCL, Rob studied law and then found himself in the automotive industry. We also cover Porsche's historical and current products, and then we take a deep dive into the projects Rob's been involved in at his time at Porsche. Without further delay, I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as we did making it. Hi Rob, how are you doing? Hi guys, yeah, all good, all good. Great to uh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me along. Ah, it's a pleasure. Um, so let's get started. Could you tell us a bit about your time at UCL, what you studied? So yeah, it's um, it's going back way way further than I probably uh, care to admit to. Um, but uh, but yeah, a, a few years ago, um, I uh, I joined UCL to study uh, classics, which was Greek and Latin, um, which was a pretty pretty niche, pretty exclusive um, uh, course. Um, we had a few interesting alumni. Um, not so automotive, but probably way, way, way more interesting than me. Um, so uh, in his third year, when I was in my first year in the same department, was Chris Martin from Coldplay. Um, we also had in his second year, when I was in my first year, was Tim from Keane. Um, so uh, by, by, by rights, I should probably be a really, really successful musician. Um, but, uh, but as it is, I, I play with cars for a living, so I went a, went a slightly different route. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, that was my experience at UCL. So, um, yeah, did, did, did three years um, just across the road from, uh, from history and uh, what was then engineering. Um, had uh, had many fun lectures uh, I- interrupted by engineering managing to set fire to the building. Um, ha- happened happened almost on a weekly basis that the fire alarm would go off, the fire brigade would turn up, and then they'd realise that yeah, someone had just set fire to something, and then uh, always always good. But um, but yeah, so so three three happy years um, uh, in uh, in our department of uh, of, of classics. Um, so that that was my my UCL experience. Um, while I was at UCL, um, I was quite lucky because I lived, you know, not not that far away actually. So um, it meant that um, I was able to kind of dive off and and do a few other bits and bobs, which uh, which at the time was uh, I I was racing, so I was just getting into doing a bit of racing, um, which was which was Caterhams. Um, used to work at the weekend with a guy down the road from Brands Hatch who used to prep the race cars and do various kind of upgrades and bits and pieces so that was um that was kind of the cool thing and, and to be honest one of the one of the you know apart from the obvious appeal of going to UCL was one of these kind of side benefits um was that yeah I could dash home and 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 do bits and pieces um on on the side which which helped me kind of establish that sort of ground 
or that baseline in, in terms of cars. Right, okay. So the automotive sort of passion, where did that stem from? Was it during your time at UCL or were you sort of in love with cars from, from, from the get-go earlier on? I think it was probably the get-go. I mean, to, to be honest, it's it's one of those things, I think, for all of us, you know, we all, there are different things that kind of spark that interest or that enthusiasm, and it's, and, and, and maybe there's no kind of one set thing, it's like a cumulative thing um, that kind of builds up and, and, and away you go. So, I think for me, it was, it was interesting. I think as a kid, you know, I was very influenced by, it was mainly aviation, to be honest. So, I kind of, um, I don't know how I stumbled into it, but but I ended up kind of reading a lot of Biggles books, um, which was all kind of like, you know, First World War and, and onwards of, 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 you know, a series of books that were serialised, I think, first as kind of newspaper pieces and then became kind of collated into books and then written specifically. Um, and yeah, they, they were just something that came up when I was a kid and I got into air, aircraft and flying, wanted to fly, wanted to be a pilot. Um, and I think by the time I was 14, I was six foot. Um, and it meant that sort of, you know, when I when I gamely sort of marched up to the Irish recruitment tent at one of the airfares, uh, they took one look at me and went, yeah, you, you, you're not going to do, you're not going to do fast jets. Um, and it was like, oh, uh, and at that age, you kind of look at it and you're like, well, all I want to do is fast jets. You don't think about anything else. You just want to be a fast jet pilot. Um, so you sort of think, well, no, if I can't do that, um, and then I think a logical progression was that you then, you know, you got a secondary interest in in anything mechanical, anything like that. I think, truth be told, I, I would have wanted to study engineering. Um, unfortunately, I'm rubbish at maths and rubbish at physics, which was two fairly big nails in that coffin. Um, so, um, yeah, being being more kind of arts focused, um, engineering wasn't wasn't as much a a, a choice so um yeah i think cars were that kind of fallback it's like well if i can't do you know anything that i want to do with airplanes then you know you look at cars and and that becomes your, your next interest i guess so that's that's where it came from perfect right okay yeah i, I know that we have quite a few engineering students in this call as well um so, so you studied classics and then after UCL, what was the sort of um, the transition to Porsche, and how how was the choice of studying classics influencing this this transition? I think it's it, it's interesting, and uh, and I, I've kind of wrestled with this ahead of this 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 call to kind of <laughs> figure out how, how how do I sort of put this in a way that's not deep motivational. But I, I think the reality is is that you know the benefit of sort of you know it being a, a as I said a fair few years uh, twenty odd years um, since I was at UCL. Um, it, it, it's interesting the kind of perspective that you have, and I think. You know, at the time that I signed up to do classics, I, I literally had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I think at that point in time, you know, very, very, very late 90s, um, you know, there was a lot of stuff happening in the digital world. The Internet was kind of evolving. E-commerce was developing. There were a lot of kind of cool things going on and it was difficult to kind of know, you know, what you wanted to specialise in or what you wanted to do. So I think the advice and the good advice was, you know, do something that you know you're good at. Um, 
and I think, you know, for me, the choice of degree was was and university to a certain extent was, you know, do the best degree at the best university that 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 is almost a statement of intent. You know, if you don't know what you want to do, at least do something where people look at it and go, well, OK, it's not necessarily the most relevant, but at least we know what you can do. Um, so to me, it was kind of keeping my options open. It was it was something that meant that I enjoyed doing it. It's something I was interested in. Um, you know, the, the the department was 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 and is one of the best uh, in the country. Um, so it was kind of yeah, kind of a bit of a no brainer to do it. Um, so that was that was kind of motivation in terms of degree and, and where I wanted to do it. Um, I think kind of where it went from there was kind of very much, especially given the sort of times and what was going on, it was there was a lot of stuff in the mix. So I, I basically I graduated and decided to go into e-commerce, which was was very much the kind of big growing thing. Um, literally just in time for the dot com bust, which happened in 2001. Um, so that was that was kind of challenging. It was interesting. But like anything with these things, it creates opportunities. Um, and yeah, e-commerce became a big thing. It became more readily available for people to have e-commerce sites. So so, yeah, that's what I did. I kind of basically went into IT project management um, ended up kind of doing doing that for a few years um but my my ultimate goal was um to do law and i didn't really i think at the time that you know you do your ucas forms and all the rest of it it hadn't sort of crystallized in my head um that that was definitely what i wanted to do so the idea was you know to do the degree and you know you look at a lot of politicians and yet they they studied classics and then they did law and you know it went from there so i thought well you know it doesn't doesn't tie me to anything um so yeah worked in e-commerce got a bit of money behind me got to the point where i think you know e-commerce was developing to the point where if you wanted to be really good at it um you know, and to be honest, you know, I'm, I'm just that type where, you know, I don't want to do stuff to not be good at it. You know, it, 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 I'm quite competitive, which is hence the motor racing and that side of things. So I had to make a decision. It's like I'm really going to have to put in quite a lot of work and really focus if I want to be the best in this. And you sort of face that decision. It's like you've either got the enthusiasm or the passion to carry you through into that or you don't. And it turned out I didn't. And that was my choice to go and my chance to go, well, actually, yeah, now now's now's the time to kind of go and do law, to go back and pick up on that. Um, it's not the cheapest thing to study. Um, and it was kind of one of those where it was like, right, I'm in a position now where I can do it. Um, so I'll invest the money, I go and retrain. So I went to the College of Law. Um, naturally, I chose uh, the one that's literally around the corner. Um, so it's only down Tottenham Court Road. Um, and um, yeah, studied there for two years, qualified as a barrister, was called to the bar. Um, and again, with coincidence of timing, it just happened to be uh, I was called to the bar literally as the financial crisis kind of all blew up. Um, law firms were shedding, you know, 33, 50 percent of their their workforce. Um, solicitors weren't instructing barristers because it was too expensive. Um, so it's kind of one of those where you're like, oh, great, that was that was really good timing again. Um, 
so yeah that that never you know the opportunity wasn't there at the time uh, and at that point in time you've got you know mortgage you've got commitments and you think well you know what am I going to do um, and the interesting thing was that was you know coming from my racing while I was at UCL um, you know one of the things I discovered that I quite enjoyed was you know I was reasonably good at it people asked me what I was doing could you tell me how you do that or how you do that corner or how you do that lap um, so I got into coaching I got into instructing people uh, giving them sort of race instruction and it was something for me you know racing was something I enjoyed it was never going to be career you know that's a really you know I knew from you know it sounds crazy in hindsight but I didn't start racing or doing anything really with cars till I was 19 so until I was in my second year and even then at 19 you know I look back at it now and you think god that was quite young but the reality is is that you know as I've learned in my current position you know we we have race drivers that are with us at, at, at you know 19 years old who've already won two championships and been racing for five years it's like crikey I, I was I was old as a 19 year old um going into racing so so I knew that that was you know that was never going to be a career so it was something I did for fun and you know my studies kind of took well I sort of merged the two together but studies took priority work then took priority and for me kind of coaching and instructing was something I just did you know for fun it was something I did as an aside on days off when I had free time and it just kept my hand in kept me in the environment um and then the funny thing was you know coming to sort of 20 2008 um when yeah everything was kind of up in the air no one knew what was happening you had you know stockbrokers who were fighting to get jobs at McDonald's because that's that's all that was available um it, it, I had the opportunity to go and work for Mercedes-Benz to go on their coaching team down at Brooklands uh, and it was like yeah you know weirdly in amongst all that chaos it was a really strong growing it, you know sector so I said yeah okay do you know what that will do it's fun um I can do that for a few years my qualifications last for a while um, I'll, I'll give that a go um which um which I did uh and then sort of quite liked it and then stayed automotive ever since so um so yeah it's kind of one of those things never never what I set out to do but just a kind of coincidence of the way things things were um and yeah I enjoyed it you know did the coaching uh because I've been trained obviously as a barrister you do a few bits of your training it's a bit more vocational than say if I'd studied to be a solicitor um so the guys gave me we had a few kind of media gigs and they said oh do you want to look after them because you probably know what to say what not to say so yeah okay I'll, I'll, I'll do that uh got more into the media side of it Mercedes-Benz then offered me a, a full-time role in a suit uh which I took uh and it kind of went from there stayed with Mercedes-Benz for a few years kind of learned the trade um and then got the opportunity to move to Porsche it was yeah pretty pretty junior role but it was like yep yeah, this is my opportunity to to get a foot in the door with a big brand uh in a in a UK press office which I hadn't done before um and then yeah it sort of went from there so so never ever anything that 
you could plan or I could say, yeah, this is absolutely how you do it. Um, it, it, it just sort of happened. And, and that's that's how I am where I am, I guess. Fantastic. OK, so before we do the deep dive into what you currently do at Porsche, I think maybe a, a bit of context might be needed for the Porsche brand itself and the history. Um, would you be able to walk us through and give a whistle-stop tour of all the, not all, but most of the Porsche models going back from the 356 all the way today and explain a bit about the target market um, and a few notable details of each car? Yeah, so I think I think you know Porsche is an interesting brand. I think I think you know what what's really interesting is that my my personal passion. I've always been kind of a, a big fan of, of 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 the British sports car brands, and it sounds really odd, you know. I I've owned a, a Lotus for well, a few Lotuses, but one in particular for eighteen years, um, and I think it's always quite intriguing that I have that kind of affiliation, and yet you know I work and am an advocate for Porsche. Um, but I think there's quite a few similarities. And I think, you know, the thing the thing with Porsche, and I think, you know, one of the big things that appealed is that, you know, right back in the day is that Porsche, Porsche existed. The first first Porsche came along in 1947, uh, which was the 356. Um, that's kind of considered our, our ground zero. Um, so, uh, in fact, I tell you, I should know better than that. It's 1948. Um, but um, but yes, yeah, so that was when the car was actually registered in 1948. Um, so our, our 70th anniversary, we, we celebrated in 2018 at Goodwood. Um, so but Porsche was kind of an engineering company long before that. So Porsche engineering was established uh, back in the 1930s. Um, so there's there's a very strong engineering background. And I think, you know, what's interesting and what appeals to me that sort of essentially what sets the tone for Porsche was in the 1940s when um, Porsche kind of created um, the 356, the, the whole ethos of Porsche, and and I make a point of saying it because it, it it's probably contrary to what most people consider Porsche to be these days, but the whole ethos of it was it was, you know, in the ashes of the Second World War, Stuttgart, which is our hometown, was 50% of it was destroyed. Um, there were shortages, um, you know, it, it was a real difficult environment. So German manufacturers, not just, you know, Mercedes-Benz, who, who occupied the other half of Stuttgart, uh, were in the same sort of boat. Um, but Porsche, the idea was to compete with the bigger brands. They had to be clever. You couldn't compete with money. You couldn't compete with cubic capacity. You had to take what you had, which normally was a fairly run-of-the-mill basic engine and create something that made the most of it. It was lighter, it was efficient, um, it was it was smart, it was clever engineering. Um, so that's kind of really where Porsche started with the 356, was creating something light, efficient, that made use of the technology that existed, um, which obviously also included, you know, the original sort of, you know, Ferdinand Porsche's original kind of concept for that, that belief in the rear engine location. Um, and that's what kicked it all off. So that was a 356 that came along in 1948. Um, then, of course, the, the, the 901 came along, which is what we now know as the 911. Um, when we launched the 901, Peugeot got a bit sniffy, um, hence the 911 designation, because 901, uh, they, they, they were a bit funny about that. Uh, so, so there's a very few number of 
official 901s that were produced before it switched to 911. Um, and then, yeah, since, since the 911, which was 1963, um, that's kind of been our icon. You know, that's that's been the car that everything else has kind of hung around. Um, so 911 is, you know, of course, still still very much you know, with us going strong, um, you know, in its eighth evolution now. Um, but we've we've now sort of gone from what was originally because three five six overlapped with nine eleven a little bit, then nine eleven sort of took over, um, and really you know there were a couple of models that came along, but it was it was you know, primarily all about nine eleven, and then that that changed. You know ninety three we launched the Boxer concept, uh, ninety six the very first uh, in terms of product numbers nine eight six as we call it Boxster. Uh, came along, um, which really kind of revitalized the company. Um, it added a more affordable, um, accessible Porsche that also kind of went back to those 356 routes. Um, that kind of saw us through the, the, the 90s, uh, 2000s challenges again, you know, a few headwinds. Uh, and then 2002, the Cayenne came along, uh, controversial at the time. Um, but yeah, you know, huge success uh, provided that financial stability uh, and then the model range has kind of grown from there so where we are currently we have seven models in the range um, which is you know which, which for us is quite a lot um, we've got 718 two versions of that boxer and cayman uh, we've got the macan which is a smaller suv we've got the cayenne the bigger suv uh, we've got Panamera, uh, which is the four-door sedan, uh, also available in a sort of shooting brake, sport tourism, as we call it. Um, we've got, uh, of course, 911, uh, and then just joined, we've got Taycan, uh, which is our first all-electric. So it, it's been quite a journey. Um, and I think, you know, we're in an interesting position now where we have legacy on one hand with 911, um, internal combustion and the GT cars and normally aspirated, they're not even turbocharged. Um, and on the other hand, we're kind of at the forefront of EV technology with the Taycan. So we're kind of in that unique position where we have essentially, I suppose we'd argue the pinnacle of internal combustion, but also we're pushing the boundaries with, with what you can do with an electric vehicle too. So it, it's exciting, um, but, but challenging too. Just following on from that, I think one thing has always been that the, like the very much of the heart of Porsche has been putting motorsport technology onto the road. And like that's reflected from uh, 19 Le Mans victories and the hybrid technology that's now, you know, in the Cayenne Panamera, soon to be 911 towards the end of the decade, possibly. And then even the Mission R concept behind you, you know, over a thousand horsepower, 900 volt architecture. And we're, you know, what is seen as the, the forefront of, of what's possible with, with technology. So how does that idea of legacy but then also pushing the boundaries of what is very much a new and budding environment, you know, both from a racing and um, road perspective. How does that push into play with Porsche? Yeah, I, th I, th I think you're spot on. I, I, I think the reality is, is that we've always been a very much kind of motorsport focused brand. You know, I think that was something that at the time, you know, back in the 40s into the 50s, um, you know, first class win at Le Mans was in, in the 50s. Um, it's always been a way of us kind of proving the technology, improving our ethos. So we look at motorsport in a way as, as the proof of the pudding. Um, you know, if you, if you can compete and win, then clearly, you know, that's pretty objective. You know, it's against the stop clock. If, if you're winning, you've clearly produced something that's good. Um, and I think 
that's one thing. But yeah, as you say, cascading that technology, taking that technology in a relevant way to the road um, is a very different, A, a different challenge and B, you know, from our point of view, different in terms of communicating it. And I think, yeah, I, I, I think that's it's very much, I mean, the example we always give is that Weissach, which is our research and development centre just outside of Stuttgart, um, that houses both motorsport and the GT division. So GT division produce things like anything that's got GT in it. So well, apart from GTS, so, you know, GT3, GT4, GT4 RS, that's the GT division. And they're literally down the corridor from the race team. So there is a massive A efficiency, again, coming back to that kind of ethos of trying to be efficient with what you've got. You know, if, if for example, the road car team have been working on a new rear wing, and they've spent you know hundreds of hours in the wind tunnel there's no point the race team going and doing exactly the same thing they might as well just wander down the corridor and say oh guys what learnings did you get because we can factor that into the race cars so it actually goes both ways you know row cars feed into the race cars but likewise if race car look at the swan neck rear spoiler so the idea of having a, a support for the rear wing that goes up and over and attaches to the top face of the rear wing the reason is is that you know i'm i'm not um um yeah probably our, our engineering uh, students here will know more than me but you know the, the apparently the bottom surface of a wing produces is ultimately more important to the production of of lift or downforce than it is um the top wing so that's why it makes more sense to produce a wing that is mounted on the top wing because that strut will produce disturbance on the surface that's less vital um you know that was something that fed very much from the race team back to the road car sort of side of things um so there is very much this very fluid kind of technology transfer from from the one to the other so i think i think that definitely is very much a kind of a part of what we do in terms of kind of marrying the legacy of what we have in terms of the future which is you know alternative fuels it's it's electric it's 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 Taycan it's it's you know what will be mission or mission R which will be whatever it will be um I think that's why it's kind of important for us and this is kind of getting into the realms of I guess communication and and specifically what I do but that's why it's important for us to kind of remind everyone that you know what we do you know it the ethos of what Porsche is, is making the most of what you have. It's taking something that is fit for purpose, that is the best for its purpose that it can be. And that doesn't really matter. That transcends whether it's, you know, a hybrid or an internal combustion or electric. And I think that was always the message with, with Taycan. It was, we always said with people from day one, from mission, from mission E in 2015, we said this isn't going to be an electric car this is an electric Porsche. It's a Porsche first and foremost. The fact it's electric is kind of secondary. You know, it, 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 that's not the engineers were kind of like, we are going to build a Porsche. The fact it happens to be powered by pure electric it, it is by the by, it's still a Porsche. And I think that that's been kind of borne out now over the past kind of 18 months of, of you know, road tests in Taycan and, you know, all, all, all the very kind of, you know, amazing things people have said about it um so i think that that legacy that that what is porsche has been instilled into something irrespective of the powertrain which is why i think you know it's it, it's a bit of a i guess it's a bit of a buzz phrase it it's 
I know it's something, it sort of struck me when we did Goodwood in 2018 and we we, we had the 70th anniversary and that Goodwood had this kind of what they call the, the Porsche moment. So it was, and they've done it, you know, the featured mark. So every year there's, there's a brand that is kind of featured um, and you, you get a moment in front of the house and there's the sculpture. Uh, and for us, you know, we, we gathered around, we had all the race cars, we had some of our sort of race drivers current, you know, past. And it, it, it was actually quite surprisingly emotional thing is that when you, you know, you do a job and, 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 and you know, job's a job. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you do a job because, you know, we all need to pay the mortgage and the rest of it. So, so in a way to be sort of emotionally attached to your job is a bit of an odd but very nice thing uh, and I think a lot of us kind of found that when that moment we sort of had that moment we had we just looked around saw the cars through the ages we saw the drivers that created some of these magical moments and you sort of realize yeah you know this has been this has been a golden age that's lasted 70 years and is continuing um, and I think that's that I have to say you know that is one of the kind of cool things you know much as the day job is, yeah, we're, you know, I'm there, my job is to advocate Porsche and, and put it in the most positive light. You know, the nice thing about chatting to everyone here is that, you know, it, it, this is this is me as a, you know, as a person um, saying, actually, do you know what? It, it, yes, it, it's actually kind of cool working for Porsche. It is, you know, it is way more than just a job. You kind of get absorbed into that legacy, that heritage. Um, and different things tick different boxes for different people, but definitely, definitely ticks a box for me. John and I have actually both had the pleasure of being able to drive a Taycan over the last couple of years. So yeah, I just, just want to reiterate that that thing about emotion being at the very heart of, of all Porsche products, even the electrified ones, it is so accurate. I mean, for, for people listening, if you have a chance to drive a Taycan, try it out, please. I, I cannot hype this up enough. It is a, it's another feeling entirely. But yeah, um, speaking of emotion, so you've been attached to a lot of projects at Porsche, especially from a PR perspective. 911 Ski, for example, is the one that comes up to mind uh, the most. Would you be able to tell us about more about that? Yeah, so 911 Ski was an interesting one. Um, I mean, there's quite a lot behind the scenes that's quite nice to share because it, in, in some ways, um, it's an odd thing to say, but but a lot of the actually probably the, the really cool stuff is stuff that we can't really say um, uh, and didn't. But um, but yeah, I mean we we I mean by way of background, so our our, our sort of head of PR at the time, uh, who's now uh, heading up PR uh, over in North America for Porsche, um, he's you know really kind of creative guy. His his again in terms of that random route that we all took to get to where we get. He he actually studied at Coventry, um, studied car design. Uh, Coventry obviously big big car design university, um, and uh, he ended up becoming a journalist. Uh, moved across into PR, um, but very very kind of creative guy. And you know for me. You know, he was someone that I worked with at Mercedes-Benz. He moved to Porsche, and that was part of the reason why I then sort of moved across to Porsche. Um, and it, it was that was one of his ideas. So the background to it was that a few years ago, uh, I think it was Top Gear had had looked at doing pretty much the same thing with the Ferrari FF. It was all-wheel drive, um, and you know, just for whatever reason, it hadn't even managed to make it out of the car park. Um, so we we kind of revisited and and we thought well you know wouldn't it be wouldn't it be really cool because one of our 
core things, particularly with 911, is it is the everyday usable sports car. You know, it, it, it can do, you know, it can lap around a circuit and then go pick up the kids from school. You know, it, it, it's that kind of thing. So we thought, well, it was also an anniversary of, of all-wheel drive Porsches. So I think the um, the first um, Carrera 4 was in the 964 generation. Um, and we thought, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to uh, to, to, to mark it. Um, so, yeah, we, we, yeah, I mean, going into full detail, but we, we'd done, I think, Top Gear were doing one of their kind of speed week things, and it was out on a frozen lake in Sweden. Uh, really, really cool. We sent a GT3. So we talked to our colleagues in Sweden, and we managed to get some studded tyres um, for the GT3, which we then sent it on. Uh, car came back, we put it back onto normal tyres. So we had a set of studded tyres kicking around. Um, so when we had the idea to say, well, actually, wouldn't it be kind of cool to... The full story was that we'd driven the 911 Turbo S um, from the lowest point in the UK, which is just outside of Huntingdon, I think. Um, so it's whatever it is, however many metres below sea level. Um, and then we'd driven it to one of the highest points, which was you know, top of a ski slope in Scotland. Um, so that was kind of the idea was it was it was low to high and it was to show the versatility that 9-11 could do this all within the space of a day. So um, because we're only a you know, fairly small team, there's about four of us on the on the PR team, um, we, we engaged an agency that we work with. Um, so they they basically took the car, collected it from RHQ in Reading. Uh, it was on winter tyres. Uh, they took it to Huntingdon, sort of filmed right, here we are, we're sort of below sea level, off we go. So they did that initial leg, and then we met them up at Glenshee Ski Resort, um, just north of Edinburgh. Um, we then had the wheels and tyres, best set of wheels and tyres, mounted with these sort of studded winter tyres, uh, bolted the car onto those, um, filmed it driving up and down the ski slope. Um, in that slightly typical way, I think, that we have within the industry, we, we had absolutely no idea if it was going to do it. Um, absolutely not at all. Um, so it was one of those kind of nail biters. It was like, well, we kind of like, in theory, we should be on pretty sound ground, but yeah, we've got no idea. Um, so uh, anyway, um, trusting in the car, it, sure enough, it, it did it. Um, drove up and down a few times. Uh, we, we filmed it. So the, the Glen Shee were brilliant. They, they had a couple of guys on skidoos. So uh, one with a photographer, one with a videographer, uh, sort of hacking up the ski slope while the, the car went up with a journalist from Top Gear in it. Um, and um, all, all was well. Um, the, the slight challenge was, it turns out, getting down a ski slope is slightly harder than getting up it. Um, so our technician had the unenviable job of trying to return the car back down. Um, and on the way down, I've, I've, I must admit, I've never been skiing, but um, it, 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 I think a ski slope, it's very difficult when it's kind of quite bright and everything's very white. Um, you can't see the undulations. So uh, anyway, at one point on the way down, he, he got quite airborne um, and uh, landed fairly heavily. Uh, brought the car back down to the bottom, and uh, we we opened the uh, the front the front the front sort of boot space as it were under the bonnet, and um, yeah, just sort of pushed the boot floor up a fair bit, um, which, which all of which was absolutely fine if the car had been trucked back. But I was then due to go and recce the entire North Coast 500 for an event we were doing later that year in the same car, so um, he said, "Hang on a minute, we we, we can sort this," um, and he's got many years experience with Porsche. So he, he's only a little fella. Um, and he uh, he got in, uh, jumped up and down, 
pushed the boot floor out and went, there you go, that'll do. Uh, we swapped the car back onto its winter tyres. I then drove the entire North Coast 500 and back home in a day. It was about fifth, nearly 16 hours I drove in a day. Um, car didn't miss a beat. So that was that was the story that we never really told, was that not only did we do that, but the car genuinely, we just swapped it back onto winters, drove the best part of seven, eight hundred miles. Um, and then the car literally two days later was out doing normal press loans. Um, so that was, yeah, that was that was 9-11 ski. Wow. <laughs> Lots of words. I mean, reliability of Porsches is legendary, of course, especially compared to, you know, competitors in the market. <laughs> Ferrari, sorry, I had something much about that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, wow, no words. Yeah, I really love that story. I think it really shows how performance-focused Porsche is and also how you talked about versatility. I think it really shows how much um, Porsches over time have been built for driver experience and to enhance that sort of driver experience. Um, and I was wondering how Porsche and sort of other sport, I mean, driver experience-focused brands were going to go about the switch to potentially autonomous vehicles. Um, and I was wondering if Porsche was thinking about that and how you guys were sort of going about, um, yeah, facing that change. Yeah, I think I think autonomous vehicles is is an interesting one. I, I think it's as a general topic. I think it was something that was really big. It was really big when I was at Mercedes Benz. Um, I think it was back in 2013. Uh, they had an autonomous S class that basically sort of drove the route of the original three wheel, you know, three wheeled Benz patent that, that Bertha Benz had driven. Uh, and it did the whole thing entirely autonomous, uh, autonomously. Um, and that that was uh, it did have an engineer in the wheel, uh, you know, behind the wheel just in case uh, with his hands all Velcro to his uh, to his legs just in case. But um, and it's interesting that I think as it's come nearer to fruition, I think the challenges have become a bit more apparent. Um, it, it, you know, I think even just the past couple of years, um, it, it's really gone quite quiet on the autonomous front. Um, I, I think, um, you know, it, it, it's not easy. It's a big, big challenge. Um, and I think that side of things, I mean, we, we pretty much went on record to say that, you know, we would probably be the last manufacturer that would want to create an autonomous vehicle because the whole thing's about driver engagement. So I think we were pretty punchy even back in the sort of the the, the, the peak of the drive for autonomous vehicles um, in terms of saying, you know, this is this is not what we're about. Um, we're about engagement, not the car doing it for you. It's not to say we don't have, you know, things like Panamera. We have Inner Drive, which is a sort of a uh, an overarching system which connects together various elements of the car to kind of help give you a I forget off the top of my head the different levels of autonomous driving but level two plus I believe in a drive yeah yep. yeah thank you so yeah that that exactly so it gives you that kind of early level sort of assist um but I think you know beyond that it's never been a particular focus and and I think for us we've we've almost been um, just sort of sitting back and seeing how it's evolved, and I and I think the reality is it's 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 just gone very quiet because I know you know within our our, our group family you know Audi were very much kind of both feet in in terms of the future being autonomous, and you know BMW did a similar sort of thing. You know they they did quite a few sort of um, hesitate to use the word stunts, but they did a few kind of focus sort of PR events. Uh, based around autonomy and literally it's been 
pretty quiet the last couple of years from everyone. So, so yeah, I think I think in in a way it was never one that was going to be a top focus for us. But I think also contextually, it's interesting. It has gone quite quiet. And then touching on like the future of mobility then. So I know that Porsche is investing and looking in towards e-fuels. So could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so e-fuels e is interesting. I mean, we, we, I mean, from a communications point of view, we've had a few challenges with that. Um, I think the headline is, it's really good news. Um, it's great. Um, I, I think the challenges we had were, I think, because it's a central project, and, and this is a kind of a, an insight into our sort of specific setup, but of course we, we, we are, in inverted commas, just a market. Um, so the mothership in Stuttgart, you know, will dictate projects like e-fuels. Um, and I think they probably underestimated just how big the concept was gonna be. So I think they went at it from a communications point of view, doing it very specifically, that it was going to be quite niche. Um, uh, uh, and when the first kind of couple of news reports came out and press releases, it literally exploded. And we we kind of, you know, I think us and particularly the US guys were kind of feeling that, yeah, you know, that was kind of going to happen. We, we did say that it's going to be big news. Um, so I think I think in the way it's been communicated uh, uh, and in the way that it, it fits, it, it's not the scale that Porsche fuels is on we're not going to save internal combustion you know let's let's be honest we're not we're not here we're not doing it to keep a 1998 Ford Focus rolling for the next 50 years um you know it, it it's they're expensive they're difficult to produce you know we're trying to do e-fuels in a way that is carbon neutral from top to tail so the reason why our plant which we've just broken ground on in Chile um, it, it is in Chile is because of the wind profile, a lot of the energy, it's quite energy intensive uh, to separate the hydrogen and, and, and go through the process. So to do that in a sustainable, neutral way, um, you need to have somewhere that's got the wind power that can sustain it. Um, but the volume that we're producing, yes, you know, we will put our Super Cup program uh, next year, I think is going to be running e-fuels that will get rolled out into other championships. And again, it's it's coming back to that kind of motorsport and road technology transfer. You know, we're piloting it on the track and then it will roll out to the road. I, I think for us, we sort of see it as a responsible way of honouring the fact that we're lucky that we have, I think, over 70% of the cars we've ever made are still on the road. Um, and I think while we need to be responsible in terms of, you know, Taycan and, and carbon neutrality, and we've been quite, you know, quite upfront and and quite sort of, you know, quite focused on the fact that you know 2030 is our goal for being carbon neutral. Um, you know, Taycan factory is is very very aware in terms of you know having NOx absorbing panels on the side of the building. Um, so I think you know e-fuels fits within that, and it's a way of us saying our owners can sustainably and responsibly still drive a 1965 911. Um, in a in a sustainable neutral way, um, so that's kind of where e-fuels kind of fit in for us. Um, is it it's targeted very much on us and our owners and our products. Um, you know, it's not so much a 
we can keep the internal combustion engine alive because with the best will in the world even if it did that uk you know just taking uk government as an example you know we can't sell internal combustion however it's fueled as of 2030 so so e-fuels or not that doesn't help us in terms of legislation um but what it can do is other things it can make that a bit more responsible so that that's where e-fuels fits in for us something okay, that so uh, go ahead go ahead johnny okay um so definitely the focus then is on electric and obviously with that the Taycan currently the porsche electric vehicle that is for sale could you talk a little bit about what happened at brands hatch with all the records with the Taycans. Yeah, I'm 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 happy to. I mean that that was a that was a bit of a pet project of mine. Um I I I, I could timely do a quick switch of my background because I, I I do uh, I have quite a cool um where is it? You see this 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 shows my absolute you know, you'd never believe I used to work in um IT for a number of years because I'm that in it um with anything like that. But um yeah let's go for let's go for this one quick quick switch um so uh, so yeah it, it it was it was a great project i mean it was it was one of those interesting ones where it was i think one of the best projects i've done in my time at porsche because it was very it worked on every level um it it, it worked for the product it worked for the brand it worked for the media outlet um but to give you a bit of an idea, the, the, the idea behind it was actually came from um, uh, it came from Autocar, it came from a journalist that we know quite well who freelances, uh, used to be full time at Autocar, now freelances. And um, he he's very, very traditional, very old school. He was one of the influences for me when I was growing up, one of the kind of people that I you know hung on their every word, used to get Autocar, read everything that he said. And, um, you know, as an aside, is, is one of the kind of things that I love about what I do is that, you know, a lot of the people that were so influential in terms of what I'm interested in, what cars I was into, and just my general love of cars, you know, now being able to not just spend time with them, but call them friends is is really cool. And uh, yeah, he had the idea. He said, look, you know, we want to go. He said, there's a load of UK electric records. Basically, no one's taken them. Um, are you guys up for it? Uh, I said, yeah, you know, uh, why not? Um, you know, it was, if you think back to the end of last year, you know, year ago, distant memory, but, you know, we were back into a second lockdown um, or a third lockdown, second or third, second. Um, but, you know, things were pretty, pretty grim. Um, you know, we'd had that sort of moment of hope during the summer uh, and then it was all descending back into kind of misery and lockdown and chaos uh, at the end of the year. So the idea of kind of doing something was kind of quite appealing, just just in that slightly contrarian, you know, it's like, yeah, it's kind of nice. Let's try and do something, even though everything suggests we shouldn't. Um, but we looked at the idea and we said, yeah, it's a great idea. We're up for that. But at the end of the day, his idea was that we go to the Millbrook Bowl, which is just a, a, a banked high speed, perfect circle uh, up in Bedford. Um, where you know a lot of people have done record attempts before and we said well that's kind of cool um but at the end of the day you could pretty much put a brick on the accelerator pedal and take five uh, or indeed take a number of hours and then just come back and the car you know what does it speak in terms of what the car can do it doesn't you could do that in anything um so to us it was kind of like well the fact that the records didn't stand meant that we 
we were kind of freed from that we need to do this you know and get the best numbers we possibly can because yeah to me that would have just been as you say motorsport terms pot hunting you know you 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 know that was just going out and just taking records for the sake of it and, and it wasn't anything that that you couldn't do in another ev um yes we had certain advantages in terms of you know we have 800 volt technology which only just now has been joined by things like the e-tron gt um and the uh, ionic 5 um but at the time you know we were we were the only car that had 800 volts we were the only car that could charge at 270 kilowatts um so we had those advantages but in terms of just driving around a bowl for you know however many hours is anything could do that so we we said well look okay you know let's let's you know, we're, we're a sports car brand. We've got a lot of history with thousand kilometer races. It's a key distance in endurance racing. So why don't we look at trying to emulate that? You know, look look back at the history. So anyway, cutting uh, a far longer story than the one I'm telling short, um, we decided to go to Brands Hatch. Uh, we'd won the thousand kilometer race there very famously back in, in, in 1970. Uh, we won it again in 1984. Um, and we thought, yeah, you know, that'd be really cool. Let's do it at a racetrack. It's tougher. Yeah, we're not going to get such good efficiency figures, but it just not a lot of cars could lap around a racetrack for what was in the end 13 hours. Um, never mind an EV. Um, so that, yeah, that was the idea. So we 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 took. Um, if I move my head out of the way. Um, there's that we had two cars that we created in a retro livery. We had the Salzburg car. Uh, which is most famous for being our very first Le Mans outright win in 1970. Um, but it was also at the BOAC 500 at Brands Hatch in 1970. And uh, famously, the Golf livery 917 with uh, Pedro Rodriguez as one of the drivers won um, in the rain, pouring wet, one of the greatest sports car drivers has ever been. Um, but the Salzburg car actually came third. It was on the podium. Uh, and one of the drivers was British driver Richard Atwood, uh, and it was the same driver pairing team that had had, had won Le Mans uh, a few months earlier um, that that year. So so we did one tribute livery for that, and that car, part of the driving strength of that car was Richard Atwood, um, who'd been there in 1970, who'd won Le Mans, uh, 80 years old. Um, it was quite cool to have him on the driving team. Uh, and then the other car that we ran, so that was a Taycan 4S, totally, totally, genuinely standard road car, that we'd taken off the press fleet. We only had four Taycans on the press fleet at the time, um, so we couldn't be too picky. Um, so that was that was our Taycan 4S. Um, if anyone kind of reads Top Gear, um, they had a Taycan 4S on long-term loan, a, a Mamba Green car. That was exactly what that car went to do one week after we did Taycan Endurance. That became Top Gear's long-termer, uh, and quite genuinely on exactly the same set of tyres. Um, so that was our Taycan 4S. Uh, and then the, the the what was a Canon liveried car was a Turbo S, which you can see uh, right on the far side of the uh, the shot, um, and uh, that was in in sort of homage to uh, Jonathan Palmer's win back in 1984 uh, in the 956 when he won thousand kilometres of Brands Hatch then, uh, and uh, obviously sort of it's a bit of a double whammy that Jonathan did come back and drive that car for us on the event. Uh, also coincident that he now owns uh, Brands Hatch uh, and various other circuits around the UK, uh, as well as being a you know former Formula One driver and, and, and generally sort of fairly top chap. Um, so it's quite nice that we actually had 
the cars liveried in those those liveries and we also had the drivers from the period as part of the driving strength um and then yeah we we basically um again one of those nice things we had absolute going into it we just sort of had no idea that we would succeed brands hatch had a curfew so we knew that we could only run uh, we couldn't start before seven and we couldn't finish after eight that was our that was our limit um even though they're electric and obviously there's no noise issues um that's the the operating curfew of the circuit um so it's quite tough we we had to kind of figure out uh, and being honest we only got probably 30 minutes a few weeks before to test the car to try and understand what the usage would be in terms of energy to try and understand how we how we do it so we um we we came up with with what we called a lap delta so essentially a target lap time that we felt was the best balance between speed and energy usage um so we had uh, on the indie circuit uh, which is a slightly shorter 1.2 mile circuit uh, we needed uh, i think it was it, the salzburg car was a one minute eight because uh, being a Taycan 4S, it was a little bit more efficient. Um, and the turbo so it was a one minute 10. Each lap was the, was the goal that we, we'd set. Each car had three drivers. Um, so we had a team. I was I was driving actually with, with Team Cannon uh, in the Turbo S. Um, and uh, with me, we had our 2020 Porsche Sprint Challenge GB champion, James Dorlin. Uh, we also had Jonathan. Uh, but he could only come in and drive a couple of stints. And then we also had the journalist who was Colin Goodwin. Um, in the Salzburg car, we had our Carrera Cup GB champion, Harry King. Uh, we had Colin again was was driving that car. So he needed to, for the story. It was important you drive both. Um, and uh, we had Richard Atwood. Um, so that was our, our kind of driving team. Uh, and because it was COVID, um, because Kent had literally, I think when I had the planning meeting with Brands Hatch, literally in the middle of the meeting, Kent went into what was at the time, whatever it was, tier, don't pass go, don't collect 100 credits. Um, so so we had to keep a skeleton team. So we literally had, we, we set the whole thing up like a race team. So we had a team manager, a deputy team manager, a head of technical, uh, and then just the drivers. And, and that was literally it. Um, so um yeah we, we we set two and i did the first stint in the in the in the uh, turbo s colin did the first stint in the 4s uh, and we generally had no idea so i was i was first few laps i, I had the, we had the trip computer and everything set up so we knew what the energy consumption was and it was like oh you know is this going to be anywhere near uh what it was that we, we we predicted so it was a really nervy kind of few laps not to mention it was pitch black it was early in the morning it was raining like hell the entire day um and and uh, yeah fortunately the the, the mass we done was, was was pretty much on the money um in terms of charging germany had a big i think it's like a 2.3 megawatt charging truck um which uh, which was designed for Taycan events that you know weren't necessarily somewhere where there was the suitable infrastructure because the trade-off of having the only 800 volt car at the time was that there weren't very many places you could charge it with that benefit um so yeah we managed to do the paperwork managed to sort of get the driver and the truck over because yeah because combination of things uh, fortunately just pre-brexit 
otherwise that would have been an additional headache. Um, but um, but yeah, in the middle of COVID, we managed to get that to happen. So um, and we've done a couple of quick tests the night before in terms of charging. Um, so yeah, for the first charge we did on the Canning car, uh, we actually beat the officially quoted time. We we ended up charging, I think it was three percent to eighty five percent in twenty four minutes. Um, uh, and we um, and we quickly discovered actually that the pit stop times that we'd allocated, the 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 limiting factor was actually us being able to change the drivers, get the drivers to exchange information. That was taking longer than charging the cars, um, which was quite cool. So I think it, it, in the end, over the thousand kilometres, we we ended up with a split of the UK records between the the Turbo S got some, the Four S got others, which was quite nice. Um, and I think our average speed over a thousand kilometers was something like 47 miles an hour, including charging time. And I think a pole position lap for Carrera Cup GB is something around just under 90 miles an hour. So for a road car and including charging, it wasn't a bad average pace. And I think when you looked at the 917 from 1970, it won the race at an average speed, again, similarly wet conditions to us, uh, about 70 odd miles an hour. So all things considered, it was it was yeah really incredible run, and we we learned so much about the cars genuinely. You know, we learned an awful lot of things about heat management, uh, all sorts of stuff. So yeah, massively positive thing for us, and and yeah, definitely one of the one of the biggest things I've 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 enjoyed in my time, and we've we've done a few. Nice. Uh, you mentioned the 800 volt architecture of the Taycan being like one of the central things to good heat management, consistent performance, etc. Given that there's now finally, you know, competitors in that sense, Lucid Air with their 900 volt system, Hyundai with their EMG, uh, EGMP platform, 800 volts as well. Where do you see Porsche's main competitors of the next five years or so, say, uh, coming from? Yeah, I think I think that's interesting. I mean, Lucid's a really interesting one because I know their their CEO Peter Rawlinson was was kind of really quite direct in the early kind of interviews that he gave with the first Lucid in saying we have specifically looked at Taycan and taking that as a as a baseline and it's like well that's you know great you know that's that that's what it's about and i think you know it, it's these kind of scenarios where i think having that motorsport background and that motorsport ethos kind of helps because motorsports always you know it's like leapfrog you take a step someone else goes past you you then go past them it's the way it goes you know you don't take it lying down you're not going to go oh well you know that's just the way it is someone else is now better than us you know it's always going to kick you and you're always going to be like, right, yeah, that's it. We're going to come back and we're going to do something better. Um, and I think that's that's how it's going to work. But yeah, I, I think it's a really, the future is a really interesting kind of blend between, you know, those new startups like Lucid who have got, you know, it swings and roundabouts. You know, we, we as we said, you know, we benefit a long, uh, in a lot of ways from our heritage and where we've been and the things that we've learned and everything on the way. But it's very easy for heritage to almost become a millstone around your neck, you know, whereas people like Tesla, Lucid, they don't have a heritage. They can just completely rewrite the rules from a clean sheet. Uh, and that in some ways is quite liberating. So I think it probably balances out. You know, they have some advantages from being new. We have some advantages from being legacy. Um, it, it averages out. But yeah, I, I think it's going to be an interesting blend. I think I think definitely Lucid is a great example. I think they, they are bringing some really cool stuff to the table. 
Um, and I think we'll probably see more a bit like that. So, so yeah, I, I definitely that that I think is where the biggest challenges are going to come. But but you know, having said that, you know, in the here and now, I mean, we we've particularly in the UK. I mean, last year we were the second biggest market in the world for Taycan, um, which genuinely we didn't expect. You know, US predictably being number one um, by quite some margin, of course. But you know, we didn't expect UK to be number two. So I think generally Taycan has found a huge kind of resonance with people um, and um, yeah, where the next steps go, as you've said before, you know, we've got Mission R, um, interesting sort of testbed for technology, um, you know, that that will kind of propel us certainly again, probably initially on the race scene uh, to then transfer into the road scene. Um, so yeah, we, we, we're definitely not standing still. And I think despite the fact that we are you know, clearly, as today's news shows, you know, we are splitting our efforts between, you know, future technologies and, and, and drivetrains, but also traditional, emotional, you know, making the most of it while we can, as, as it were. Um, but that's not going to stop us kind of pushing forward with, with things like Mission R. And as you say, you know, 900 volts, looking at what other people are doing now, you know, taking taking on board what we've done. So it is going to be exciting. I, I, I think, you know, my view is it, it's one of the most exciting times, probably the most exciting time for the industry since the very first cars came along and became what well, became cars rather than horses carriages around the 1900s. Um, you know, there is the opportunity right now, given by, you know, EV technology to, to, to completely reinvent what a car is and the idea of personal mobility. So it is exciting. Uh, and, and yeah, we, we, we're definitely in the mix. Cool. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me for the Taycan launch was uh, just how positive, uh, especially UK journalists, really approached it. So thinking Henry Catchpole from Carfection, Chris Harris from Top Gear, I mean, the real greats of automotive journalism. I think um, one thing that really cemented UK's adoption of the Taycan was just how impressed they really were with uh, with the Taycan. I mean, for example, Chris, I uh, know Jack Ricks, it was doing a head to head with the Tesla Model S. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was that was the one moment I still have the magazine somewhere the cover with the Mamba Green. Uh, Taycan, yeah, that really, that was the moment I think when people really realised, okay, Porsche is not here to match Tesla, they've obliterated them. So really, how how important will journalists be in the next few years in like increasing that EV adoption? How is communication from PR perspective, um, you know, maintaining that? How does that work? Yeah, I think I think that's a really cool example. Um, certainly for me personally, because um, I, I actually went out and did that with Jack and Ollie. Nice. So Ollie Ollie drove out the Tesla, um, uh, and then um, yeah, Jack met us out there, and and, and I actually had the had the Taycan. So um, that that was my first ever experience of Taycan. Um, uh, and interestingly, you know, the guys had done we we did the whole thing because we did a film and we did the the magazine piece in the space of just two days. Um, and obviously, I I kind of knew the theory. I'd read up on Taycan, but I, I'd never experienced it. I'd never tried the charging. I'd never done any of that. And um, I remember the guys had gone off and done the top speed run up and down the autobahn, uh, and it just happened. You know, well, we sort of planned it. Um, that stretch was right next to an Ionity charging station. So when the guys had finished, they went back to the hotel uh, to try and figure out how to charge the Tesla. Um, and I said to the guys, look, honestly, you go get some get some dinner, you know, settle yourselves down. I'll sort out charging the Taycan. It won't take long and I'll bring it back. Um, so I charged it and I remember driving it back from the charging station to the hotel, which was only 20 minutes. Um, and just in that drive thinking, 
you just get that feeling it's that butterfly in your stomach I was like this this is special this is different um and I think I kind of knew even in those early days that it was like yeah we the guys have put their the engineers have put the heart and soul into it and I think you could see that when we do because Porsche is a smaller company you know we are we're a big brand but it's a very small team so for example in the UK we're only about 120 odd people um you know, that's the entire of Porsche GB across every function is only 120. So we, we are small uh, and it's the same in Germany. And, you know, the engineers, you could see them, particularly, I think, UK journalists, as you say, you know, we have, you know, we're lucky. We have some of the best journalists in the world. They produce brilliant content. They're, they're informed. They're knowledgeable. Um, and I think their their opinion carries a lot of weight. So coming back to your question, I think I think the opinion that they form it goes both ways. It goes to us and it goes to the sort of consumer or the buyer. Um, so I think it's really important in terms of a shaping the future of what we produce, um, because what they say genuinely matters. Um, and I'll give you an example. You know, I, I remember we, we did a, a, a bit of a we were doing some sort of social media clips ahead of Goodwood. And, and the guy said to me, oh, do you mind just doing some chores of the job do you mind doing some donuts in a gt3 rs i was like yeah right i'll do that um and um fortunately because i had no idea at the time um photographer who was with me kind of had been around porsches a while he, he owned a gt4 and he said oh he said you do know if you hold back both paddles on the pdk box it, it basically drops the clutch you can then rev it let go of the paddles and it's like a clutch drop i was like oh brilliant that's rather handy um, anyway, the, the, the story behind that goes to, you know, one year we went to we went to Goodwood and uh, there was one of the works drivers was demonstrating a car up the hill. And uh, Andreas Preuniger was like, oh, you know, these guys are stopping and they're, you know, they're doing donuts. Why aren't you doing that? And he's like, well, I can't do that in a PDK. He's like, well, what do you mean you can't do that in a PDK? He's like, well, how do you drop the clutch? He's like, well, that's not that's not acceptable. So he then engineered it into every single GT car and now every single Porsche since that point has the function that, yeah, if you pull back both paddles, it drops the clutch, you can rev it, let go, and it's literally like dropping the clutch on the manual. Um, and that's how personal it is. You know, it's, it's individuals have such a big impact on 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 our cars and what we do. Um, so everything the journalists say, you know, a lot of our guys, you know, you, you said Henry is an example, Chris Harris, they have great relationships with our engineers, you know, they have that one to one rapport. So a lot of the things that they say and they feed back, you know, does get filtered in and, and, and you quite often will see that then appearing in future products because that's the feedback. Um, so it's, a, it's it's kind of a nice, nice situation that we have. So, yeah, it's, it's been really important. I think, you know, there's a certain amount you know, much as, you know, our job in PR, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not smoke and mirrors, it's not Jedi mind games, you know, probably be a lot easier if it were. But, you know, at the end of the day, the, the guys are consumer pros, you know, they know what they're doing, they form their opinions, we simply try to give them everything that they need, all the information to be able to do that. Um, you know, we can give them insights, we can help them chat to people to understand more. Um, but yeah, as you say, I, I, I think it's a massive driver of, of, of what certainly some customers will then want to engage with i think it, it it's a whole different level i guess to what we do and and this is kind of a maybe a whole different discussion but in terms of that sort of interaction of, of different people 
and and why they buy our cars and who buys our cars you know different things talk to different people you know and 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 much as you know we we don't increasingly less want to pigeonhole people at the end of the day you've got to try and at least understand and try and sort of get a handle on the people that are buying your product and i think it's it's interesting that there are certain groups particularly the group i think that um is engaged with Taycan, they aren't they need to be advocated to if you put an advert they'll say well okay fine that's an advert i'm not interested whereas if someone whose opinion is independent and they respect says look honestly you should look at this car it's good that resonates um and i think we know that that audience is strong with Taycan. Um, and I think we've seen that in why Taycan, particularly in the UK, has been so successful because we have the, that advocacy, we have those voices that people trust who are independent, who are saying you need to look at this product. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think particularly for Taycan, it's been important, definitely. And then from back Brands Hatch, going back to Brands Hatch, what other projects? Have you particularly enjoyed while at Porsche? I think I think we're lucky. You know, we we have one of the kind of best automotive sandboxes in the world. Uh, is the way I look at it. You know, it it it's we have some great products. We have great access to all sorts of places all around the world. Um, and it, it's one of those things. It's a bit like if you go into a restaurant and the menu's got four things on it, it's a pretty easy decision. If you go into a restaurant and there's twenty four things on it, it becomes a bit harder. And I think for us. You know, one of the the greatest things, but also the greatest challenges, is that we literally could do anything, um, and that's quite tricky. Then honing that down and saying, well, actually, you know, within the day to day, you know, we have obviously various baselines that we have to hit, but we we get you know a little bit of slack where we can say, look, you know, we've got a bit of budget, we've got a bit of time, let's let's do something. Um, by and large, we we like a bit like with Taycan Brands Hatch, we we like it to be an idea that someone's come to us with. You know, and we'll say, OK, that's a really cool idea. We'll help you realise that. Um, but there are other times when we will come up with an idea and say, yeah, do you know what? Um, you know, we're going to give this a go. So looking forward, you know, for example, we know next year we'd like to do something with Panamera. You know, Panamera, you know, is is getting to a point where, you know, we've been focusing on other things. Panamera hasn't had a lot of love. So what can we do with Panamera? So we're now in that kind of creative phase of, yeah, let's think of something really cool that we could do with Panamera. Um, and that'll be something that we we do at some point. You'll see that next year. Um, so in the past, you know, one of the things when I when I joined was that we were tasked with, you know, we invest a lot of money in motorsport. You know, the, the LMP1 program was a big project for us. And what we wanted to try and do was trying to engage people on a broader basis with what we were doing in endurance racing. Because, you know, one of the things that, you have to be wary of is that you know yep i've got a motorsport background i enjoy motorsport endurance was my sort of thing um it's very easy that i take for granted that i know what's happening and i know what it's all about but not everyone does in fact the majority probably don't so we thought what can we do to try and articulate to a more general audience what le mans means so it was literally our 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 head of PR at the time Angus and I sort of were just having a bit of a chat one morning and we were like yeah you know wouldn't it be cool to do something what do we do about Le Mans Le Mans coming up we should do something quite cool what could we do and we're like well 
you know, health and safety, you probably can't get journalists driving a car for 24 hours. That's probably not the smartest thing. So if you can't do time, what's the other thing you can do? Well, you do distance. So you hit Wikipedia. How far did, you know, the 919 travel in 2016 when it won Le Mans for the first time? Oh, 5,400 and something kilometres. OK, well, maybe we could drive 5,400 kilometres. So you get Google Maps out and you sort of get the ruler thing and you're like, you're sort of going around Europe going, right, uh, should we do Russia? Mm, probably not. Um, so in the end, we were kind of like, actually, we could drive from the Arctic Circle to the southernmost point of Europe in Spain. It's a place called Tarifa in Spain is the southernmost point of Europe. We could do that. OK. And therein started six weeks of some of the most intense planning I've ever done. Um, but yeah, basically, um, we we decided to drive one of every model in the range, which at the time was six, uh, plus a 918, uh, which was seven. Uh, so seven cars, we decided to drive 5,000 in the end, 5,407 kilometres uh, from a place called, it's pronounced Buda uh, in Norway, just north of the Arctic Circle on the coast, uh, all the way down to Tarifa. Uh, we did it nonstop. Uh, we did it in one hit. Um, we did it with journalists from all around the world. Uh, we had 14 journalists, so we had one chap from Japan, a couple from China. Uh, we had Belgium, France, UK, Germany, uh, all sorts. Um, and um, yeah, we, we, we basically did a, a non-stop drive event. So the journalists drove during the day. Uh, we had two, genuinely, we had two rock and roll tour buses um, that were following us. Uh, the journalists would then swap out sleep in the tour buses overnight, which would then carry on on the road. Um, and then we had sort of a team of professional drivers that would then drive through the night who'd rested during the day. Um, but yeah, logistically, it's probably the most complicated thing I've ever done because at any one time, because the team of professional drivers, we then had to get them out the cars, but then get them ahead of the convoy. Um, so they had to then actually get a train or an aircraft to get ahead to the next rendezvous point the next the next night um so so that was that was that was incredible i mean i think for about two weeks i had no more than about three hours sleep a night um just trying to plan it make it all happen um and yeah basically lived in the 918 that was my mobile office so um we had a car of 918 from the museum uh they said yep you need to have someone in it the whole time um so i said i'll do the first stint and the first stint turned into the second and the third and the fourth and yeah basically i got out of it when we got to tarifa um but um but yeah that 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 was that was incredible that was you know and, and to give the journalists a very because of course the scenery when you're in the arctic circle is very different to the scenery when you're on the southern coast of spain um and it really articulated just how far a car will travel in the course of Le Mans. it gave people a very visual reference to what an achievement it is to lap at racing speeds for 24 hours because you are covering that kind of distance um so so yeah that 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 for me definitely kind of stood out and yeah it's been a couple of others you know we we you know keeping it keeping it uh, in terms of headlines but yeah we we drove 10 million pounds with the gold bullion from east london to hatton garden in three panameras um we, we've done all sorts of kind of cool and wacky stuff so it's it's quite nice you know we we do get a chance to do some some slightly kind of left field stuff i'm assuming that was for the gold edition then that released a few years ago 
No, uh, if only that had been the timing had happened uh, that way, that would have been ideal. But uh, but no, it, it, we we basically did it to coincide with Sport Turismo. Um, oh. So it was kind of showing the fact that you know you had this, and we had police escort, um, and, and we yeah genuinely each car had three point three million pounds worth of bullion in the uh, in the boots. Um, it was um, yeah again one one of the kind of left field things we did, and we had uh, it was also coincided with the anniversary of the uh, the original Italian Job movie. Um, uh-huh. So we we didn't directly reference it, but the cars were red, white, and blue. Very nice. Um, um, one thing I, wanna... put... oh, I'm <laughs> I just want to touch back on that uh, relationship between motorsports and road cars. Uh, I believe Volkswagen said um, earlier that they were interested in maybe joining Formula One, depending on the engine regulations that would be coming in in 2025. Um, and obviously, F1 had announced that biofuels would be used. Um, so from 2025 onward. And I was wondering, so what your sort of point of view was on Porsche potentially joining um, F1 and how beneficial you think it could be from a PR perspective for Porsche as a brand? I think it's it, it's interesting. I mean, it's one of the great things of what we do is that there are certain times we keep our head in the sand because sometimes knowing nothing um, is a lot easier than knowing something. Uh, and quite genuinely, I know absolutely nothing internally in terms of what we want to do with F1. Um, probably for you know good reasons is that you know there'll be things bubbling away, and I think you know there've been yeah whether it's new product or new new projects, we we see the same sort of stories that everyone else does, and uh, uh, and we we're largely informed by that rather than anything we get internally. I think so. So so yeah. I mean, I, genuinely, I, I don't know anything about what what the future might hold for us in that. I know we've done it in the past. I know that you know, for example, next year is an anniversary of our one and only uh, win in F1 in 1962 uh, with Dan Gurney. Um, so I think it'd be interesting. I, I think it's been a long, long time since Porsche entered F1 under its own name. Because um, when you think we were very heavily involved with McLaren, but that was via tag. Um, so I think it, it, it's definitely in that sort of complicated corporate world will be interesting to see what happens. I think, you know, as probably Honda would attest, um, and this is just me speculating as a as an individual, you know, Formula One can and any motorsport, as we well know, can can buy every bit as much as it gives. Um, it, it's a tough environment, and I think when you're doing Formula One, that that's you know the toughest of all. Um, would I like to see us in F1? Yeah, of course I would. It'd be awesome. Um, I think, you know, we, we've had Super Cup, which has supported F1 for, 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 for years and years. Um, I, I, I think it's, I, I still, despite some slightly challenging years, shall we say, with F1, uh, I remain a very diehard F1 fan. I still, for my sins, watch every race. Uh, it's been great, you know, last year or two. Um, but yeah, there's been a few years that haven't. Um, but I think, yeah, F- F1 is still what it is. And I think, you know, it, it would be an interesting project, interesting platform. But at the same time, you know, we've got LMDH, you know, we're going to be back into the top flight of, of endurance racing from 2023. Uh, we'll have a new 911 GT3R, uh, which will kind of reestablish us. So it'd be the first 992 generation of race car. Um, so I think, uh, or tell like because we've got the GT3 Cup, uh, but it'd be the first kind of, yeah, international, certainly GT3 homologated car. Um, so so I think there's exciting things. And I think, you know, if F1 factored into that, that'd be great. Um, do we especially, you know, are we missing anything right now? No, but would it enhance what we're doing now? Yes. 
Um, so, uh, so no, I think I think it'd be exciting. You know, be, we'll just wait and see what's happening. I think, you know, the headache at the moment has now shifted from uh, from the speculation about us, obviously, to McLaren. Uh, so we'll let <laughs> we'll let those guys yeah, um, find some heat there. Yeah, they they, yeah. they can take that heat for now. Um, we'll we'll step back and let them have a bit of time on the stage, but uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I'm just mindful Great, of the time. You. So uh, I'm just going to ask if anyone has any questions, if they want to put them in the chat box, now will be an amazing time. Um, yeah. Anything else that you want to cover? In the meantime, we could have some quick fire questions. Um, so Rob, what's your current favorite Porsche that they produce? Uh, it, it's a difficult one. If, if, if I'm being really honest, um, yeah, we, we don't, obviously our job is putting other people in the cars. We don't get to spend as much time in them as, as we'd like, but we do get to, you know, use them for events and, you know, certain times when we, we need to drive them places. If I was going to say the one that I miss driving most, I would say Taycan. I, I, it for me is, it's interesting that as a, as a diehard petrol head racer, you know, having done endurance in it, you know, Crikey, it, you know, it, it won me over all over again with with that because it really did look after us. And I think, you know, a couple of moments when, you know, you've been driving for quite a few hours. I'd never driven on a track in the dark and the car just had your back. It was just amazing. And I think, you know, I genuinely, of all the cars I spent time in, if anyone said, right, you can pick anything from the fleet, what are you going to take this weekend? It, it would be Taycan. Um, in terms of, for me, what would I buy? Um, probably a 718 GTS 4 litre and it'd probably be Boxster if I'm honest I I, I just yeah I, I think they're great I, I think they're cool little things so um, so yeah be, be well ideal world both <laughs> right okay and then pre-2000s what would be the Porsche of choice there I oh, don't don't even have to hesitate on that. Um, I, I literally had to be dragged out the workshop the other day because there was a customer had a 993 turbo um, getting serviced. It was uh, dark blue metallic. It had the sort of pale grey interior. If if I could get a wind, rear windscreen wiper delete on it, um, I would be I would be in my element. I, I I'm a bit I have a bit of a thing about rear windscreen wipers, but. Um, but yeah, 903 Turbo, I think everyone, probably a lot of people kind of have um, a poster of 911 Hull on their wall and you kind of age yourself by kind of which generation 911 was it that that, that was your 911 Hull. And, and for me, it was 903 Turbo. I I, abs I love the shape. I love, yeah, that would be mine. I do agree. The 993, fantastic looking car. Um, and then the final question, if you recommended one video for people here to watch on YouTube, what would it be of Porsche? Again, don't have to hesitate with that one. I, I think um, the best one I've seen is Henry Catchpole did a video a few years ago with our 991 Gen 2 GT3 manual. Um, filmed it up in North Wales and it was basically an ode to the manual gearbox. It, it was it was Henry absolutely at his best. It was 
quite emotional. It was insightful. It was beautifully delivered in terms of the complex emotions and 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 what he was trying to convey. But yeah, if there's one video, it, it's it's Henry's v- review of the of the GT3 manual on on Carfection. Um, it, it's just a wonderful piece that just goes back to yeah the emotion of driving. I think in an age when more and more driving is seen as a chore as a necessity, um, Henry really did hit the nail on the head with 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 just showing how it can still be something emotional and something that you do for pleasure. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Rob, for joining us today. It's been a really interesting conversation. And thank you very much for those who attended as well. Um, I am conscious of time. I think it's time to wrap up now. Um, But once again, thank you very much, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, guys, for for inviting me along. It's it's been nice to uh, chat to everyone. And and, and likewise, thanks everyone who's, uh, who's been listening along. For updates on new episodes, please follow us on Instagram at ucl.ats. Also, we are on the constant hunt for automotive writers. If you would like to hear more about this opportunity, please send us a message on Instagram.